Process Safety with Trish and Tracy is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing, and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to Process Safety with Trish and Tracy, the podcast that aims to share insights from past incidents to help avoid future events. This podcast and its transcript can be found at chemicalprocessing.com. I'm Tracy Purdom, Editor-in-Chief of Chemical Processing, and as always, I'm joined by Trish Kieran, the Director of the iChemi Safety Center. Hey, Trish, how are you? Hey, Tracy, I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm doing just fine. I'm excited for our conversation today. You've brought along a guest with you, Mark Jarman, who has been working in the risk field for over 35 years, mainly in the petrochemical, upstream, downstream, and mining industries. He specializes in risk assessment, process safety management auditing, development and training, safety cases, and due diligence evaluations. You two seem like a pair matched well. I know you go way back. Tell me a little bit about the relationship. Yes, so we go way back to around about the year 2000 or so uh, when I was working at a refinery and the government in Victoria had just introduced their safety case legislation and Mark was helping us work through producing our safety case. And that was where I first uh, came across Mark and we've crossed paths ever since for the last, what, 23 years. Exactly, Trish. And uh, yeah, I first met you as uh, when we were doing the the um, South Crew tank farm, um, hazops, etc. for the safety case preparation. So yes, it goes back a long way and we've had a, a lot of involvement since and uh We've kept in touch at uh, various points in time. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. In today's episode, we're going to tap your risk assessment expertise. And right out of the gate, I want to talk a little bit about um, how risk itself has changed over time. And has this impacted risk assessment methodologies? I would say that the risk approaches has changed enormously since when I first started. I first started off as a loss prevention engineer in the late 70s working with Factory Mutual, which is probably one of the best training grounds in the world for loss prevention engineering, but it gave me a really good foundation for for understanding risk and uh, especially consequences. And also the fact that their standards were performance orientated and I was probably blessed and cursed at the same time with with uh, always inquiring and asking why this is so. So when we first started off doing risk assessments, um, after I left Factory Mutual, I joined uh, Dentinorsky Veritas and the only tools available really were uh, Lee's loss prevention in the process industries, the very first book. So we were basically self-taught and learnt a lot about how to do uh, risk assessment from scratch. And in those days, we were doing fault trees and event trees. C- computers weren't, uh, were only just starting to be available, but they certainly weren't used in the actual risk engineering field. And everything was pr- pretty much black box. And that's where I was actually wanting to make a, a huge difference. And the industry's made a huge difference since then too. So I, w- I always railed and hated black boxes and I wanted transparency. And so I left Dettnorski Veritas and formed a, with two other guys, uh, a, a company called VRJ Risk Engineers. And one of the, the real thrusts I had there was to uh, develop um, transparent risk-based assessment methodologies such as HAZOP, QRAs, 
uh, loss prevention, uh, fires, uh, 3D modelling, etc. And over the years, we developed lots of things, including probably some of the first based computer technology for recording HAZOPs and uh, and doing all the actual some risk assessments associated with that in and incorporating um, matrices but we also were very keen based on the the previous experience i had with uh, factory mutual on importing performance based approaches into into risk assessments especially into qras and based on those days we didn't have any bow ties as we know them now we had inventories uh, fault trees and inventories and they were complicated, they were difficult to use, very mathematical. And since the, uh, the coming about of bow ties has made things a lot easier and also very transparent. And we've also gone um, a long way from just using results based on numerical um, quantitative approaches such as 10 to the minus 6 and 10 to the minus 7, one chance in a million or one chance in 10 million. And to uh, through the ILAP process and the much abused and used um, cost benefit analysis through to I'm pleased to say the uh, current technology or sorry approach which is used right throughout Australia at the moment which is SAFARP which is um, a very good way of uh, addressing whether a risk is so far as reasonably practicable. And I mentioned that uh, it's the previous approaches, ALARP, and, and it's, it's, it was good at the time, but we've uh, pr- progressed, but it was very easy to write off big risk reductions based on, uh, on a cost-benefit analysis, which was difficult to do in a, to actually rail against or to actually put argument up, up against it. But we saw lots of examples where uh, risk reductions were just written off or were not done because of a, of a so-called cost-benefit analysis approach. Some of the uh, transparent types of approaches, if you look at say AS1940s back in the uh, mid-90s, early 2000s, all of the actual um, cooling requirements were based on the properties of petrol. If you didn't store petrol then you had uh, you had problems. Sometimes it would overestimate what the actual cooling water demand was and sometimes it would seriously underestimate what the actual cooling water demand was. And that's where Transparent methodologies were coming to play where we invented, developed, sorry, programs like Tank Heat where we could actually physically model how much heat was being received across a surface area at different points across the, the, the surface area and when, when to apply uh, uh, cooling water, how much. And this sort of technology w- was uh, presented to the authorities, both the fire brigades and the and the actual other government authorities, which led to changes to, and risk-based approaches being used in in uh, in in Australian standards like nineteen uh, AS nineteen forty. When you have um, examples of technology being used, it does aid and um, progress the understanding of uh, risk and consequence modelling to the benefit of not only the, the actual client and the actual facility, but also society. Trish, what are your thoughts on the progression? Yeah, we've certainly seen enormous development over the years as things have changed. And as Mark said, in the early days, it was very much black box and no one, I don't think many people really understood what was going on inside those black boxes. And so we were at the mercy of them. I think the transparency that we see, the methodologies that we now use, really allow clear discussion of what the risk is that we're trying to manage. What is the consequence? What is that likelihood? 
and what are we going to do about it? And we now have much better tools, I think, and as as Mark said, transparent ways to deal with them so that everybody can understand it. And more importantly, we can communicate the risk. And what I mean by that is there's no point communicating the risk as, you know, 10 to the minus 7 to a chief executive or a financial director that has to make a decision. That's not going to be helpful. What we need to do is be able to tell the story of the risk. What are we trying to prevent? What is going to go wrong when it goes wrong? And what can we do about it? So the ability to be able to clearly communicate that, I think, is really important. And we've even recently seen, uh, so a couple of years ago, you'd remember Tracy in the Safety Centre, we put out a document called Delta Hazop, which focused on the creeping and cumulative change in facilities to assess that. So, you know, we're constantly looking at ways that we can provide refined tools for people to use. We're currently working on one focused on transient operation risk assessment and how best to do that as well. That Delta Has Up um, podcast that we did was very popular, got a lot of interest. You, you also wrote an article for us, too, on Delta Has Up, and, and we did get a lot of traffic from that, so uh, very much so, uh, very poignant. Let's talk a little bit, you both have touched on it, the technology, the role that technology has played in shaping the evolution of risk assessment, AI, data analytics, modeling techniques. Let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, I think the potential there is huge, and the certainly the data, and I'll speak a bit of, uh, in, in bits and pieces about it uh, as I answer the question, but certainly there is a greater potential in preparation, but I think it is, it is still very early days, and um, I'm not probably, well, let me rephrase that, I'm, I'm certainly aware of it, I would have slight reservations about certain aspects of it, because uh, I still like to. I, I still want to see the actual human input into it, especially the operators, being having a, a major input. Still, I would hate to actually see that um, uh, change because that would go against the uh, uh, all the actual knowledge I know. And uh, I would certainly see that there can be improvements, certainly in preparation for for hazards and hazard hazards, and also reviewing the cumulative changes the, through MOCs and work permits reviews and incidents that have occurred. But I also know that there's a lot of information in uh, data, data loggers within plants which is simply not being used. And if you can get access to that information and analyse it, then you have a whole host of other information to determine how the performances control systems are working and when they nearly reach their uh, uh, set points as, as opposed to exceed their, their set point trips. And so there's a whole host of information which, which can be gathered and used there. But if I go back a bit, you know, like in Hazard Hazards, uh, the transformation is, has been huge from just hand recording things through to computer-based um, technologies now where everything's transparent. You can actually have all the words agreed on on the screen before you and agreed by everyone around the room. If not, you discuss it until you reach a resolution. And then you can move on to, to the actual next node or the next uh, guide word. And so that has been really important. And as Trish and, uh, and I mentioned uh, previously, you know, early black box consequence modelling has been... Uh, it was really hard to see what was going on and the only people that really knew what was going on and it was hard to actually challenge them was the people who did the work. 
there's a whole lot of things that uh, associated with, say, 3D modelling. And certainly we had a lot of 3D modelling in the actual VOJ days, but certainly the, the CFD modelling for explosions and jet fires and even pool fires, etc., uh, huge. It opens up. Uh, it opens people's eyes as to when they when they can physically see the time progress from failure of say a high pressure comp um, propane, sorry, um, LNG compressor system, and the consequences of a fire explosion and see the damage which which actually can occur, and that leads to a lot of understanding by management, senior management, who have had no exposure to that sort of stuff, and it's easily explained, as Trish mentioned before. So the actual, um, the actual data in logger plants, you can, it's, it's really used information, but that covers a lot of the actual culture of the way things are being done in plants by operators and by maintenance. And typically I've seen that a lot of maintenance management systems, they, they tend to be service orientated towards the maintenance side, but there's a whole host of rich data in there which can be used by the risk analysts if they can get access to it properly because that records everything and it has all the actual failure rate data of the plant based on the actual processes and systems which that company uses to maintain their plants. And so when opportunities presented themselves, we were able to harvest the actual information and that gave a realistic, um, uh, a realistic approach towards our modelling and we could justify it. Certainly, if the, if the information wasn't available, there's plenty of publicly available information for actual failure rate data. But having that cultural stuff influenced by using plant data has always been very good. So I would say that that's the gold standard if you can actually get that and you can get the culture in its place to be used in your risk assessments, that is fantastic. Plus, being able to focus attention on the data for each MAE or MI is, cri is critical for overall transparency. So I would say uh, access to AI is going to only advance the, the actual knowledge which we have and the information which we can have at our fingertips and use for doing better risk assessments. Yeah, I'd agree with uh, with all of that, Mark. It, generative AI has some enormous potential in being able to gather data that, as humans, we don't necessarily have the capacity or the time to bring in and analyse. And so if we can actually gather some of that data together to then move forward with the human review then so the data pulling out what's important to us so we can then do something with that i think that's enormously powerful it's it's about the use of the big data that we've got companies have all sorts of information and we need to get better at tapping into it and some of the ai tools are really uh, quite helpful in doing that but i do share your concern that we actually don't want ai making the decisions for us that does require human intellect because it's not a simple decision to make. It actually not only has intellectual aspects to it, but it also has emotional uh, and, and that human side aspects to it as well. Because when we do talk about risk in these terms, we are actually talking about people's lives. We're talking about whether people live or die. So we, we can't just leave that to the AI to do. And that's just unconscionable in, in, in my mind. Um, we need the ethical aspect of the humans being engaged in that conversation. I know that there are some companies that are doing a lot in terms of how to scrape data and gather it and prepare it and do things like they're, they're talking about um, 
you know, AI-driven HAZOPs and things like that. But it's really, again, about gathering of that data so that the assessment can then be done. I would uh, like to go back and add a, add a few more things on there in terms of the actual practicalities and the detail, Trish. If you uh, look at what we used to do to get that following on from all that work, we did a lot of um, reviews of the MIs at, uh, at the plants that you worked at, and, and that actually looked at all the data that was, was being used uh, for evaluating the effectiveness of the control systems once they've been once they've been in use, and also looking at all the MOCs, which is uh, and the uh, and the permit to work systems, etc., mm. associated with uh, with every MI, and being able to actually get that data and analyse the effectiveness of the controls and where improvements can be made, is is really crucial, and if you. Uh, uh, you rely on AI to do that for you and not have the human input. Like you said, Trish, there are real concerns that you'll miss things. Yeah, just for some of our listeners um, that may not be familiar with some of the terms, MI, major incident, MAE, major accident event. So we're using terminology that's very well known within the world of uh, risk-based performance legislation, but perhaps not so well known within a prescriptive legislation regime. Thank you. Yes, thanks for that clarification there. Let's talk a little bit about um, some historical events and incidents and how they've driven change in risk assessment regulations and practices. Anything come to mind? That depends on the the frame of reference. Um, I suppose I go back quite a few years and I have a fairly big frame of reference. But I also think that the uh, podcast or the information you guys put out, Trish and Tracy put out on, on the actual historical events which have occurred and, and, uh, and the lessons learned, I, th- I think that they are gold and c- continue to do that, guys, because it's, it's, um, it's very important. But in my time, the actual key incidents are Flixborough, Bhopal, Exxon Valdez, Piper Alpha, Faison, Esther Longford, Texas City, Deepwater Horizon, Fukushima, specific tailing damage failures, Buntsville, Coot Island. They have all been super critical to, uh, sorry, super important for our learning and gaining knowledge and also understanding societal's expectations uh, about risk and the acceptability of plants near uh, residential areas and also shows up, uh, highlights the uh, issue of of uh, creeping residential areas uh, closer and closer to, towards high hazards um, plants, industry, uh, industrial areas. And we've all seen that over the years, and it, there's probably no, no better examples of that than in the States, in, in, in the UK, and in Australia. And if we learn anything, and that's where I suppose the part of the experience I've had is acting as expert witness uh, for um, various big events, which, which, which have occurred in Australia, you really get an appreciation of what the law says is acceptable and not acceptable based on the actual outcomes. So what I would say is that these incidents, historical incidents, uh, are very important. They're gold for learning information, but we can get a better understanding of the causal mechanisms, including the politics and it's always interesting to learn. It has always concerned me that we will make similar mistakes, same events still happening. And 
if I look at uh, if I look at um, crude oil storage tank fires, we know all the mechanisms which which can lead to a crude oil storage tank fires, and we should be able to re reduce them to so far as reasonably practical. But they still happen, and it happens across the world. In in Australia, we have a very very strong major hazard facilities regime, and hopefully those sort of things should not happen, but they probably will happen because of the lack of corporate memory associated with the required documentation which has been prepared and has just been left go. But I'll speak about that just a little bit, a little bit later on. But all the incidents that have occurred and the, uh, and the information Trish and Tracy put out, we are all still learning and we can still learn. Yeah, I think, um, for my mind, the one of the key historical events that you did mention, Mark, is was actually a, a turning point for me in my career, uh, and that was the Longford incident. And if I look at the impact that that then had, so for me it was a, an enormous awakening to process safety and a realisation that we can't have these things happen anymore. You know, two men, Peter and John, died that day. We can't keep doing this. And so we need to um, be doing things differently. And, and that did lead to the uh, change in the legislative regime that uh, led Mark and my paths to cross. But interestingly, that incident also then led to implementation in other places and then followed on. We've now seen, for example, New Zealand have a, uh, a safety case regime implemented following their coal mine disaster that they had at Pike River. But originally the, the documentation, the legislation that New Zealand picked up was actually the Australian one, which was largely based on what happened after Longford. So it all sort of follows on. And, and if you go right back into to Flixborough, that's when uh, the legislation started to change in the UK and then Piper Alpha really kick-started that change again to the sort of regimes we now have that require certain risk assessment practices to be undertaken when you've got certain types of facilities. And so, you know, we have seen enormous change. One of the things I really like about the performance-based regime is that it is always changing because the standards always change. With a prescriptive regime, you have to wait for the, the legislation to actually change for it to be be required by law. But when you've got a, a, a duty to uh, manage a risk so far as is reasonably practicable, reasonably practicable changes as standards improve, as state of knowledge improves, as new technology develops. So you're always constantly trying to improve to get that risk even lower. I would say that uh, what you said is 100% correct, Trish. And when, when Longford happened, I was uh, fortunate enough or unfortunate, whichever way you want to look at it, to, to be on the front line of people to go through having a look at, the, at uh, what went, went wrong, and it's, and it's very sobering. The legislation, when the safety case regime first started in Victoria, and it was the first uh, comprehensive one uh, implemented within Australia, the regulations hadn't been written, and so it was really, and and we had a we had a, a two year time frame to actually get the safety cases done, but the regulations weren't written, so there was a lot of. Um, and there was the, the, there was angst about how the performance based stuff was 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 going to be done, but from my point of view, it was pretty straightforward. And we had a lot of interaction with the with the um, major hazard facilities um, section of the Victorian government in in our shaping thinking, and and other people did as well. And w we were very fortunate to be on the forefront of of that thinking process. 
of, uh, of helping to assist in uh, developing those uh, regulations. And so um, it's, 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 it's always changing. We, we can always learn. We can make improvements. And the, I just love the, the uh, performance-based stuff. It, it says it all. Mm. It was actually quite a, a fascinating time. So I ended up going to work for a company that was one of the exemplar safety case uh, during the development. So, so what that means is, as Mark said, from the time of the incident to the time that a completely new legislative regime was implemented was only about 18 months. And so all of a sudden, industry had to do a complete turnaround in 18 months of how they managed risk. And, and as Mark said, the first safety cases were being developed before the legislation had been written to say what a safety case looked like in Victoria. And so there was a lot of collaboration. It was a fascinating time to be involved with, with anything that was going on. And, and I think it actually, whilst it was a very fast timeline, I think it actually worked quite well. We got a very high quality legislation to work to that I think has actually improved safety for workers in the community in the state of Victoria where it was first developed here. I think it's uh, fair to say, Trish, that compared to other states I've worked in, that Victorian-based approach from when it was first uh, developed and con- contributed to by a lot of people, it stood the test of time. We're in, okay. we're in the industry. You're in the industry and we are a little more aware of these incidents. But some of these incidents that you're talking about have, you know, the public understands and sees these as well. So I want to understand how public perception of risk and safety have influenced the way risk assessments are conducted and communicated. Trish, I'm going to let you start on that one. Okay. I think in a lot of ways, the general public doesn't have very much risk education or knowledge and that makes it very difficult to have a conversation about risk with them because typically people want something just to be well you can be there but you have to be absolutely safe there's no such thing as absolute safety in this world you know a meteor could come through and strike my home right now so you can't even stay in bed and be safe like there is there is no absolute safety but people have this perception of they just you just have to be safe the fact is we, we need to manage the risks that we face so that they are at a tolerable level that we can move, move on and live with them. But the same people that want absolute safety often also take enormous risks every day without realising it because they don't actually understand the controls that they've got in place. So they get in their car and they drive down the freeway. Now, let's put that in a little bit of context. If you're driving at 70 miles an hour you are moving approximately, I won't get the exact number right, but it's going to be somewhere around about 18 yards in a second. Now, that's pretty fast when you think about it that way. It's 27 metres per second. If you think about how fast that is, and then think about the fact that you're doing that in a little tin can hurtling across the surface of the earth. And there's other cars, other little tin cans hurtling at you at the same speed. So the relative speed is double, but we just do that. And we don't think about it. So we don't understand risk in society. And I think that is one of the challenges that industry has, is that we spend a lot of time understanding risk in our businesses. And then we try to talk to communities 
but we actually need really good risk education for people so they do understand the risks that they take and that life is not risk-free. It's all about choices and and actions that we take. And we need to be very careful about the choices and decisions and actions we take because they have consequences. And we need to do the very best we can. And I'm not letting industry off here and saying, you know, you can't be absolutely safe so you don't have to. That is not my point. My point is we actually need people to understand the risk conversation. And I think that's on industry to influence government to influence education. I think it starts at primary schools It starts in high schools. It starts with children understanding what risk is because that way they'll grow up to be adults that understand what risk is and can have good discussions and make good value-based judgments on the actions or decisions they're going to take. I would agree with everything that Trish has uh, said there and I would say that uh, there are most definitely issues that need to be addressed and I would say that the the public um, perception of of what they accept and what uh, high hazard industries are, are, have to actually implement, there's probably two or three orders of magnitude, magnitude difference in, in quantified risk levels there. So like Chris said, the chance of dying in a car is probably, a car accident is probably one chance in a thousand. And if, if you use uh, numerical terms and uh, safe ARP levels are, you know, are down to one chance in a million, one chance in 10 million or lower. So. Uh, th- there is a huge uh, perception there, but at the same time, um, I mentioned before that um, that uh, you gain a lot of knowledge about the law's approach towards uh, what's acceptable and not acceptable through through the Westminster system of government law that we have here in Australia. And for instance, if a major incident occurs and there is a prosecution, it's most likely un- going to be under common law. And, the, and this requires evaluation of causation, foreseeability, preventability and reasonability. And expert witness evaluations provide specific guidance for risk engineers and management to be aware of and associated liability issues. And the, a legal team can't argue until they have the risk argument available to them. And there have been some cases where I've actually uh, gone into the actual legal team and said, this is a no-brainer, the actual client is 100% guilty for these reasons, and the legal team fashions that their argument. And the outcomes of those uh, judgments influence what society expects. Expert witness evaluations provide specific guidance for risk engineers and management to be aware of and associated liability issues. Some good examples are land use planning um, criteria. And uh, Trish, you may have to help me here because I'm not too sure what the latest name is, but the uh, New South Wales Department of Planning, they put out some very valuable guidance in the early 80s and are still being used for, for, for land use planning and it is still exceptionally relevant. And I mentioned previously about ALARP and versus SAFARP. Thankfully, we have gone long past ALARP and the much abused cost-benefit analysis, which I mentioned before. But land use planning laws uh, developed in the 1940s through to the 1990s have not always been favourable to high hazard industries established 60 to 70 years ago through residential encroachment. But there are also times when straight consequence modelling will give you a great result first up, go or no go. And there's been plenty of examples that I have been aware of and acted as as an expert witness about 
where a vulnerable uh, small group are right at the extremities of the um, of a major hazard facility envelope and you have a vulnerable population who do not know how to react, haven't been trained how to react, they could be exposed to a very low consequence, uh, sorry, a very high consequence, low frequency event, which could, if it occurred, uh, cause fatality and serious injuries to the, uh, that small group of population. And so there are times when the risk argument is good, but there are, are, are times when when just a straight consequence model and say this is a go or it is a no-go. For example, expert witness evaluations to propose sensitive population groups, like I mentioned, are, are really very, very important. And some of the last major projects I worked on were using risk approaches and requirements that echo late 1980s and early 1990s approaches. And I have always been concerned about the lack of sustainable corp and memory for risk-related issues, not only associated with, uh, with uh, expert witness work, but also clients who manage major, major heads of facilities because the people change so often and it's very hard to retain that corporate memory. And there are always um, people out there, uh, companies out there who see an opportunity and want to take that advantage of that opportunity. And I, I understand why, but they can't be allowed to expose uh, or, sorry, they can't be allowed to expose vulnerable people to high hazard consequences. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big challenges we do see is land use planning all over the world. It is a challenge. And if we think about some of the significant incidents that it has really demonstrated the issues in land use planning, Bhopal, the, the residential encroachment around that facility over the years, the decades that, that facility was in place led to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people living in that exposed area when the incident occurred. You know, up to 5,000 people potentially killed in one night while they slept in their beds. Uh, hundreds of thousands made ill. It was absolutely horrific. But even, you know, fast forward into this century, West Texas explosion, the ammonium nitrate explosion that occurred, when you saw the damage that occurred to the nearby nursing home, and the nearby high school. Now, fortunately, there were no children there at the time, and somehow the residents of the nursing home managed to escape injury after that damage. But these are examples of sensitive populations near higher-risk facilities where, if a consequence occurs, can actually well and truly expand outside their, uh, their boundaries and really create some quite significant issues. I want to switch a little bit and talk about sustainability, the focus on sustainability and long-term impacts. How does this influence the way risks are assessed and managed? I think this is a serious problematic area. And I think a lot of it has to do around, um, uh, it's based around language and consistency of definitions and lack of corporate focus on sustainable management systems. And I think, uh, you know, I, I despair sometimes, well, I despair a lot when I see language being used in uh, various international standards where the terminology associated with risk and hazard and consequences is just um, is not correct and it, and it doesn't help the consistency of language, language being used to maintain a consistent platform. 
And it comes down to corporate memory. I mentioned that just a few minutes ago, or lack of, and the vulnerability. For instance, one very large project required not only the evaluation of all uh, major incidences and all, all major action events and their safe up to termination requirements, but also the required sustainability documentation developed for ongoing use over its remaining lifetime. That was good and it certainly helped for, uh, for, for about a five year period. This worked well until questions were raised as to where risk sits in the hierarchy of an organisation, let alone a site. This led to the sustainable risk documentation becoming orphaned and eventually cut off. For instance, there is lots of standards, sorry, there, there has been lots of documentation gathered about how to maintain the uh, safety or, or the um, specific major incident uh, areas to sa- uh, safe up requirements and all the actual operations and maintenance requirements to actually keep it there. We, we know how to absolutely minimise the potential for large-scale fires and explosions and toxic gas releases, but in thing, in, when information gets dismantled and, and, and then the corporate memory is lost, and when it gets lost, it is very hard to actually recoup it again. People move on, the documentation's lost, it's been dismantled, and it's hard to repeat it. Think of it like this. We have, uh, a, when I was with um, Factory Mutual, they were very big on uh, maximum foreseeable loss, which is very much like a, a major accidental event um, definition, versus material impacts. And if you look at, um, at the uh, Australian Stock Extended Risk Management Standard, it requires you to actually document and have, uh, and have plans in place for managing every, every um, material impact, which is the same as uh, a major um, a maximum foreseeable loss and an MI or MAE. They all relate to the same thing, but, to, but described in different languages. So language is critical. So if you start talking to, to uh, business people about risk, they will all have diff- different approaches towards what their understanding of risk is, and the language is is very is uh, very different. So language is critical, but risk classically does not sit well under the current organisational structures within companies. Definitely because of language and in integrating the information in in a way that fits in with the executive paradigm of a corporate structure. This is the major challenge, I think, in being able to actually. Uh, have a clear focus and continuing focus going forward. Summation of risk consequences, people, environment, reputation, business, interruption, legal and regulatory impacts can be summated into an overall um, overall value and it can be summed and it can can be ranked and it it can be managed. But without this approach or something similar, risk reporting invariably finds a home under the Chief Financial Officer's uh, subsection of Risk and Audit Committee, and that information is then fed up into the corporate levels, board levels, uh, executive management levels within organisations. Thus, it becomes, and this is a bit controversial, I suppose, it becomes an auditing tick box function, and material risk impacts have historically not found their way to a board level. In some companies, it is changing, but in a lot of companies, it is not. And this is a major issue for sustainability, risk assessments and and management. 
another major issue I see has been the lack of connectivity and, ma and management between short-term risk and long-term risk as per, say, the risk diagram. Uh, it is relatively easy to get wins on the high-frequency, low-consequence side of the risk diagram, but connecting the management systems across all sections of the risk diagram is key and must, uh, and must achieve greater corporate focus for sustainability. So that um, th that is really a fundamental major issue that I've seen for a long, long time within within companies and corporate structures. Yeah, I I agree there, Mark. It is um, we we have this this lack of common language, and it it does present some issues because as engineers we keep talking in our risk language, and our financial people keep talking in their risk language, we are actually often saying the same thing, but we don't seem to understand each other. And that means that things do get left behind. And those material risks or maximum foreseeable uh, loss, major accident events, are the sorts of things that we actually need to be aligned on to make sure that corporate auditing does adequately address those. If we look at the uh, the recent Banking Royal Commission that took place in Australia a few years ago, that actually talked about conduct risk as well as compliance risk, and that was an interesting thing to, to focus on. It, it really looked at this idea of, you know, can you do something versus should you do something? It might be legal, but is it ethical and moral? Uh, and so that was an interesting interesting learning for us to come out. But it also was, I found it quite a fascinating read as I read through talking about operational risk in a banking sector versus financial risk in a banking sector. And the operational risk they were talking about was really the sort of things in processing industries we'd talk about as being major incidents that we need to manage and prevent. So it was interesting to see that even in the financial sectors, they still acknowledge that they have not only financial risk, but they also have operational risk that they need to be aware of and manage. And it's it's similar in the processing industries. As our operational risk tends to kill people, destroy plants, have severe impact on company reputations, and results in financial risk as well. So there's clear financial risk that companies bear on a day-to-day -day basis, foreign currency trading, etc. But then there is the operational risk can have enormous financial risk for you too. So it has to be managed very effectively. And I think we've got a, a bit of a way to go there. You know, we're, we're now sort of in a lot more sustainability type language being used. It's interesting though, we were actually talking sustainability 15, 20 years ago. We were talking about corporate social responsibility 15, 20 years ago. We seem to have lost that term. We've replaced it with another term. We're still trying to get our heads around it. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, we all need to get on board with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and try and achieve those. And if we can do that as we do our business and work towards our sustainability goals, uh, so things like you know feeding the world, making sure that people have clean water, the ability for education, the ability for healthcare appropriate to, to what's needed, all these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are absolutely critically important for us to move together as a species into the future. And so we all need to come together to work on those and not sort of use the, just keep using the corporate jargon around it, but actually do meaningful things so that we understand the risks of what we're doing as we address the challenges of today. 
I couldn't agree more, Trish. And uh, like I, I've been in boardrooms previously when we've, when we've talked about risk, and I've had to, I've had to um, ask them, I, I've had to hold a discussion with them about what they mean by risk, and it comes sometimes it comes down to the basic issues where they put up a risk, a, a risk matrix and. And risk matrices are good for certain things, but they're bad for yes. other things. But they move the actual risk around based on what they think. Yep. And I've seen that happen on many, many occasions. And and what they think bears no relation to the information which is in the the organisation to actually tell them what the actual risk is. Yep. Agree. Trish, do you want to add anything to this conversation before we wrap up here? Look, I think it's just... It's incumbent on all of us to make sure that we, one, understand the risks we take in our business and we adequately control and manage those. Fundamentally, that is what this is all about. We work in high hazard industries. That does not mean they have to be high risk. The hazard we can't change unless we are able to eliminate it, which would be the ultimate if we could, but let's face it. If your role is to produce a flammable substance, then you're not going to be able to eliminate the production of a flammable substance if that's your product that you're selling. So you know, whilst elimination is our ultimate goal, if we can't eliminate, just because it's higher hazard does not mean it has to be high risk. We have to effectively manage it to prevent and then if prevention fails, mitigate the consequences. Because as I've said a couple of times in this podcast already, People's lives depend on this. If we get this wrong, people die. And we need to get better at that because we can't keep having people die at work. And I would also say that um, as an adjunct to that, Trish, which I agree with everything you said, that uh, there is no such thing as zero risk, but we can actually take a hell of a lot more um, effective approaches to minimise the potential for those risks being realised. Yep, absolutely. And be held accountable for them. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for your dedication to help people mitigate and minimise those risks. And unfortunate events happen all over the world. We will be here to discuss and learn from them. Subscribe to this free podcast so you can stay on top of best practices. You can also visit us at chemicalprocessing.com for more tools and resources aimed at helping you run efficient and safe facilities. On behalf of Mark and Trish, I'm Tracy, and this is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Stay safe.